The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 33. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. On paper, we are at the beginning of a new scene this week, Act 3, Scene 2. But, as we've already seen in this play, the action often flows very smoothly from one scene into another, and I think it does so here. Early in Act 3, Scene 1, Macbeth dismissed everyone, including Lady Macbeth, until dinner time, so that he might have some time alone to plot with the murderers. Now we see Lady Macbeth again, apparently waiting to get a moment with her husband. She enters with a servant. Little is specified about who this servant is, but we do get quite a few nameless servants throughout this play. It could be very interesting to assign all of these roles to a particular actor, if that worked, and see how the story might progress through the play. The same servant who brings Lady Macbeth the news that Macbeth is coming home with Duncan in tow, and then goes from Macbeth to tell her to sound the bell when his drink is ready. And now the servant through whom Lady Macbeth has to ask for a meeting with her husband. As they enter, she asks the servant what's going on with Banquo. It's a simple question. Is Banquo gone from court? And the answer is likewise simple. It's information we in the audience have already. Aye, madam, but returns again tonight. The plan, as we know it so far, is that Banquo is filling up the time before dinner with a jaunt on the horses with his son Fleance. Now, Lady Macbeth asks a very revealing question. Say to the king, I would attend his leisure for a few words. Think back to the intensity of their connection when we first saw them together. Almost finishing each other's sentences, deeply invested in their mutual success and advancement. And now, she's quite literally left out in the cold having to send a servant to ask him to speak with her. Even the way she phrases it is humbling. She has to ask politely, like a suppliant. She's saying she will wait here for him to have some time to come and speak to her. She will attend his leisure, for a few words. As with any great writing, there are certainly many ways to play this, but it does seem to signal a bit of a rift between them. The servant agrees to go and check, saying, Madam, I will. We see Lady Macbeth alone for the first time since before Duncan's murder. There are only four lines here, but they tell us a very great deal. Nought's had, all's spent, when our desire is got without content. Tis safer to be that which we destroy, and by destruction dwell in doubtful joy. They've gained nothing and squandered everything. Nought's had, all's spent. This is what happens, she's saying, when we get what we want without any peace of mind, when our desire is got without content. Just as Macbeth has been telling us of the rancours in the vessel of his peace, Now Lady Macbeth is also sharing her troubles. It surely can't have been worth killing Duncan if they're not going to be able to enjoy the crown. 
just as Macbeth said, to be thus is nothing, but to be safely thus. Now we have Lady Macbeth echoing him, speaking of naught, nothing, and safer rather than safely. The tragic irony is that they are both feeling this way. They're so well matched, but they aren't finding a way to communicate this with each other. She concludes that they'd be better off being the murder victims than to profit from such murders and never feel any happiness or security thereafter. Tis safer to be that which we destroy than by destruction dwell in doubtful joy. As if summoned by this echo of his own words, Macbeth enters now, and she greets him. How now, my lord? Why do you keep alone of sorriest fancies your companions making, using those thoughts which should indeed have died with them they think on? Things without all remedy should be without regard. What's done is done. There's such a contrast here between the rebuke from Lady Macbeth back in Act 1, Scene 7, when she blasted her husband to screw his courage to the sticking place and not prevaricate like the indecisive cat in the adage. Now she seems on less certain ground. Is she trying to convince herself or him? She wants to know why he's spending his time alone, pointedly not speaking with her, we can infer. She knows her man, knows that he's prone to a very lurid and dramatic imagination. She knows he'll be torturing himself with regrets or memories of what they've done. He'll be making sorriest fancies his companions. This sounds to me just a little bit desperate, her attempt to reduce the importance of his worries to trifles or fancies. She wants him to understand that all these thoughts that trouble him should really have died with Duncan. There's no point in wasting time thinking about things that can't be changed. What's done is done, she says. And again, this is an echo. Macbeth wondered, if it were done, when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. Lady Macbeth is sincerely trying to get him to accept what they've done and move on. But of course, we know that now Macbeth is occupied with what he is still planning to do. And he somewhat obliquely tries to explain this to her now. We have scorched the snake, not killed it. She'll close and be herself, whilst our poor malice remains in danger of her former tooth. But let the frame of things disjoint, both the worlds suffer, ere we will eat our meal in fear and sleep in the affliction of these terrible dreams that shake us nightly. Better be with the dead, whom we, to gain our peace, have sent to peace, than on the torture of the mind to lie in restless ecstasy. Duncan is in his grave. After life's fitful fever, he sleeps well. Treason has done his worst. Nor steel, nor poison, malice domestic, foreign levy, nothing can touch him further. There are quite a few references to snakes and serpents in this play, but this speech begins with one of the most famous. Macbeth insists that they have scorched the snake, not killed it. An early editor, Lewis Tybald, changed this to scotched the snake, not least perhaps seductive because Scotland is the location of our play, 
but I'll put some thoughts about him and his reading in the show notes. But the folio text does actually say scorched, so we're going to stick with that. Macbeth's image is of a snake that has been attacked but not killed, and now she'll heal and return to her former power, while their bumbled attack means that they'll still be threatened by her former strength. Despite the feminine description of the snake, Macbeth is talking about Duncan. They've killed him, but they didn't kill his children, and as a result, they still pose a threat. So, instead of wiping out his family, they've only done half the job. This is a really important distinction, and it will crop up in two very important events that come later on in the play. We have scorched the snake, not killed it. She'll close and be herself, whilst our poor malice remains in danger of her former tooth. Next, Macbeth makes a pretty bleak oath. He says he'd rather have the whole world come apart and let earth and heaven suffer than continue eating in fear and sleeping as badly as he has been sleeping of late. The frame of things is the whole world. Let it disjoint or come apart, he's saying. Sharp-eared listeners will remember that Laertes was comparably prepared to risk both the worlds of heaven and earth when he came back to Elsinore to avenge his father. It feels like Macbeth would risk it all for a good night's sleep after this meal tonight. But let the frame of things disjoint. Both the worlds suffer, ere we will eat our meal in fear and sleep in the affliction of these terrible dreams that shake us nightly. In what he says next, Macbeth sounds almost jealous of Duncan. He imagines that it might be better to be dead. He's waxing quite poetic here, playing with words. In order to gain peace, or at least gain the crown, they sent Duncan to his eternal peace. And already it feels like Duncan is better off than Macbeth, who feels like his mind has become like a rack on which he is being tortured, in restless ecstasy, no less. We tend to think of ecstasy as a positive experience, a sort of joyful step outside oneself. But here, it's more the negative side of that coin, the idea of being beside oneself with fear or horror, or indeed guilt. Better be with the dead, whom we, to gain our peace, have sent to peace, than on the torture of the mind to lie in restless ecstasy. In contrast to this misery, Duncan is at peace. He's in his grave, and after all of life's challenges, he's probably sleeping very soundly now. He did suffer the worst thing that could happen. He was murdered, and it was treason. But that's the end of it. Now that he's dead, he can't be hurt by any more weapons, or poisons, or treachery from inside his own family or court, or indeed from foreign armies. Nothing can harm him any further. Duncan is in his grave. After life's fitful fever, he sleeps well. Treason has done his worst. Nor steel, nor poison, malice domestic, foreign levy, nothing can touch him further. This speech really gives us a huge amount to think about as we continue through this play. Shakespeare is setting up some very important ideas here. 
if you're going to kill someone, probably best to kill his son too. As we've already heard Macbeth plan this with the murderers, it's interesting to see his motivation for it here. He's troubled by having let Malcolm and Donalbane get away. So now lesson learned. The murderers will be sent to kill father and son, Banquo and Fleance. But as well as that, much of this scene is showing us how Macbeth envies the dead, because once you're gone, that's the end of it. Macbeth is quite philosophical, and, as his wife might put it, fanciful here. But if you already know the play, you know that this is terrific groundwork for Shakespeare, considering what's going to happen at dinner later this evening. And speaking of dinner, the ever-pragmatic Lady Macbeth wants to get back to business. She can't bear to see Macbeth seem so perturbed. He might be preoccupied with the scorched snake, but she reminds him of her advice to look like the innocent flower and be the serpent under it. This time, she says, Come on, gentle my lord, sleek o'er your rugged looks, be bright and jovial among your guests tonight. Here's another one to add to the list of mask references. She's saying to sleek o'er or smooth his rugged looks. Invariably, these days, we only hear of rugged good looks, but what Lady Macbeth is worried about is her husband's furrowed brow and rugged countenance. He's got his cares written all over his face, and she needs him to hide it a little bit better. Again. Despite the fact that he called it our meal, which could of course just be the royal plural, she advises him to be bright and jovial among your guests tonight. This is another pointed little opportunity to show the state of things between them. Perhaps it's just a means of encouraging him, or perhaps it's another sign of the widening distance between them. They have a good deal more to say to each other, but we better leave it here for now and conclude this scene in the next episode. We aren't quite going to be at the banquet yet, but there's plenty of shocking and surprising information to whet your appetite between now and when we finally reach it. As ever, you can find the notes that accompany this episode, as well as its complete text, on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. Thank you, as always, for being with me, and I'll speak to you next time.